Well, church, in your uh, bulletin is a handout regarding a concert in preparation for the Easter season, a concert for a cause that our choir and orchestra and praise band will give to us on March the 25th at the Citadel at 6.30. Please be aware of that. It would be a wonderful time for worship and heart preparation as we look to the Lord to give us a heightened understanding of what the glory of the cross really means. So that will be March 25th. Please note that. How how do you keep on going? How do you keep pressing? How do you keep going for the goal in spite of maybe severe persecution or whispering campaigns? In Philippi, Paul went and he preached the gospel and there was a response to a degree. And as Paul was in that city, Acts 16 tells us that there was a a servant girl that had an evil spirit in her by which she predicted the future. And she went around, followed behind Paul and Silas, and kept saying, these are the men who are from God, and they know the truth. Listen to them. And it became a circus instead of a chance to preach the gospel. And the Bible says that finally Paul was exasperated, and he looked at the servant girl, and he said to the demon, I command you to come out of her. And immediately her ability to foretell the future and to make money for her pimps was dried up. Well, those who owned her became very upset, and they started making vile accusations against Paul and Silas. They whipped up a mob crowd who screamed and carried on. They brought him before the officials, and they couldn't even be heard, and so The officials had Paul and Silas severely beaten and placed inside an inner prison in chains. And as Paul and Silas were there after being falsely accused, after representing Christ, after being unheard because of the mob scene, the Bible says at about midnight they were singing hymns of praise to God, which is amazing. And then it says there was a great earthquake, and we'll pick it up in verse 27. There was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose, and the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He had either heard the gospel or heard the gospel as they were singing and praising God in the inner cell. And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all of his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and all of his family. And the next day, Paul goes before the magistrates, and they just, he just says, you know, we're Roman citizens. And the magistrate goes, what? We're Roman citizens. And the master says, boy, I, says, I, I blew it. 
I beat a Roman citizen. They didn't get a fair trial. I can't do that. And so he very secretly and graciously says, could you just leave our city? And so they did. He goes to Thessalonica. And that's where this little book we've been studying, Thessalonians. And Thessalonica, instead of overt opposition, there's a whispering campaign. And the whispering campaign goes something like this. The apostle Paul and his men, they don't speak the truth. They're hungry for money. They may be involved in one of these cults that advocates immorality. They're not worthy to be listened to. A whispering campaign. So in, in Philippi, he has blatant opposition. He's almost beat to death. And then he goes to Thessalonica and he has a whispering campaign. And the question is, as we come to the text this morning, which is, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. How do you keep on going, whether it's outright opposition or whether it's whispering campaigns at the water cooler or through little texts that people send? And the answer in this text is you have a, a, an orientation that is centered on the reality of the triune God. In this passage, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 5, Paul says four different times, remember God. He says, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, he says, we, we have, our visit was not in vain. We have previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God. We were emboldened, or we dared, to preach the gospel to you in spite of strong opposition. And he says, for, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, or, 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 nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God. So he's saying, approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel. We're approved by God. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So f four times. If I am to go strong, if we're to go strong, we, we must have an orientation that's centered around the reality of God. And when you get a hold of this, it makes life really amazingly simple. And, and there's a sister letter with the same whispering campaign. It's in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12 this is what Paul says. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you, with, with simplicity, which flows from godly sincerity, which is anchored in the grace of God. If we're to be bold, if we're to not live life in vain, we've got to have a godly sincerity that leads to a simplicity of living. The simplicity of living says we're anchored in the grace of God. The simplicity of living says that, you know, the, the reason for my existence is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. John Newton about this passage said this, the true simplicity, which is the honor and strength of a believer, is the effect of a spiritual perception of the truths of the gospel. And that's it. Yes, it's a perception of the truths of the gospel, of what the Lord has done. And, and that's, that's the plea of this whole first chapter. He says in verse 1, he says, you're in God the Father and you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that because of that, grace and peace are flooding your life. As you understand that, he says, and as you understand that, please know that we always remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, 
faith in the work of Christ, your labor prompted by love, prompted by the love of Christ, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of God's coming. And he says, that's why the little paradigm is in verses 9 and 10. You, you, you church at Thessalonica, you're always turning to God from idols to, to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. His name is Jesus. And he's the one who covers us from the coming judgment. You're, you're radically anchored in the gospel of grace and, and, and the work of Christ. There's a little book called Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, written in the 1670s or so. Bunyan was in prison for preaching the gospel. He writes this, this book. And in Pilgrim's Progress, it's, it's, the, it's the allegory of a man coming to faith whose name is Pilgrim, who becomes Christian, and his, his friends. And so he's, he's with a man named Hopeful, and they're on the way that goes to the to, to salvation, and, and yet it looks like a shortcut if you went over this hill, and, and Christian says to Hopeful, let's go over this hill, and they go over that hill, Hopeful says, I'm not sure we should, we should stay on the way, the way we've told her, no, let's take a shortcut, you know, they go over the hill, and they fall asleep, and they fall asleep in a land owned by someone named Giant Despair, a big giant, and he wakes them up, and he apprehends them and throws them into prison. And this is then hopeful, groaned in himself, saying, Oh, that I'd kept on my way. And Christian said, Who could have thought that this path would have led us out of the way? Hopeful says, I was afraid from the very first, and therefore gave you that gentle caution. I should have spoken more plain. But you're older than I, brother. And Christian says, Good brother, be not offended. I am sorry I have brought thee out of the way, and that I have put you in such imminent danger. Pray, please forgive me. I did not do it out of an evil intent. And that's just the way they talk to each other, I guess. But it goes on. It talks about how the, the, the play, they were thrown to the prison. They were beaten. They were starved. They didn't have any light or any food for four days. The giant came in there and said, you might as well put an end to your lives. And they persevered. And, and, and the, the night, on Saturday night, he comes in, or on Saturday, Friday night, he comes in, takes him out Saturday and shows him the courtyard where there are numerous bones of people who were died on the way and the giant says this is going to be your end they're there in prison for five nights and on saturday night this is what happens this is really cool now a little before it was day on the lord's day good christian as one amazed broke out in this passionate speech what a fool am i to lie in this stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty, I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news, brother. Pluck it out of your bosom and try it. And so he plucks it out of his bosom and he turns into the first gate and it flows open and the next one flies open and they walk at liberty and they get on the way. And see, the, the, the allegory is the key is promise. It's, it's the testimony of Scripture. We stand on the promises of God. See, if, if, if we're to go strong in faith, we must have a God orientation that is rooted in the gospel of grace. So very quickly, I'm going to look at this text and say, how can we be bold in the Lord? Or how to not live in vain? Three quick statements. Number one, Paul says, the, the, the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives. 
nor, nor are we trying to trick you. On, on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. See, it, it doesn't flow from error. We speak the truth. There are no impure motives. We're not involved in any type of cult that advocates immorality. We're not trying to trick you. We don't say one thing here, one thing. We just preach the gospel truth. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. If you're a Christ follower, you have received a divine entrustment. You've been entrusted by God with the gospel. 1 Peter 2 says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is a it is a divine trust. There's a little hymn by Charles Wesley that says, A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never soul, dying soul to save, and fit it for the sky. To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. You have a charge to keep. Whether you're an educator or a homemaker or an accountant or a teacher or a pastor or a coach, whatever you have a, a, you've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's who you are. If you're a Christ follower, you don't give your, you don't, we teach the truth. We're not impure. We're not trying to trick people. We just have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. In Psalm 71, the psalmist starts off by saying this, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. And, and, and then he says, he says this in verses 17 and 18. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O Lord, until I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. He says, I've been entrusted. From my youth, I've been entrusted. And, and so the, the cry of my heart is, O oh, oh God, May I, may I be faithful. May we teach those around us the stewardship of life, that, that my life is a calling before God. My life counts. May we teach our contemporaries, teach each other, teach our children that, that there's more to life than personal peace and affluence and gathering stuff. There's a kingdom of God to advance. There's a glory that awaits. May we live with purpose. May we live with boldness. Paul says, I was emboldened to preach the gospel to you. You see, one way you live with boldness is that I've been entrusted. I've been entrusted. Approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. When you study ancient Sparta, I'm shocked and amazed and sad and sometimes encouraged. In ancient Sparta, the, the fathers had little to do with the sons, really. At age seven, the, the sons were taken to an academy and taught. And it was really the mothers who, was, who were involved in the lives of the Spartan men. And the mothers were, they were tough. They were tough. Plutarch, the, 
Greek historian tells us in the first century that the that they believed that when the Spartans would go out to war, the Spartan mothers would surround them. And they would say, come back with your shield or on it. With your shield means dead. It says, don't, don't lose and don't run. You come back with your shield or you come back on it. <laughs> I imagine when you're teeny, you scrape your knee, you didn't go to that mama to kiss your owies. She say, suck it up, buttercup, you know, <laughs> give the program. Would to God that we had the same spirit. See? May God take my life rather than let me sully the gospel. What's Paul saying? I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I can complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. I was even thinking this week, I was telling my wife this, I was thinking about all the books that I've read through the years on parenting. And some are good, some are not good, some are horrible. And I thought, you know, really, when it comes to living with, with simplicity and godly sincerity, if someone were to say to me, like I said last week, an elevator statement, what does it mean to be a, 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 a Christian dad? I'd say, well, two things. I go to Ephesians 6. I say, well, Ephesians 6 says, um, parents, fathers, father, excuse me, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up <clears throat> in the training and instruction of the Lord. I said, there's, there's two things that I'm to do. Number one, I am to train my children in the way of the Lord without exasperating them. I'm to love them. I'm to care for them. And part of that, number two, is I model the reality of Christ in the home. That, that's it. You don't leave a great inheritance for them? Nah. You might want to, but it's not. That's, that's B team. This is A team. This is the final four. The other's first round, losing the number 16 seed for heaven's sake. That's, don't go there. That, that, this, this is a 15 seed, excuse me. That, yeah. Simplicity. When you walk with Christ, there is a glorious simplicity that surrounds your life. I'm to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Number two, if I'm to be bold, number two. I must please, not please men, but God who tests my hearts. He, he says this. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. God who tests our hearts. Now, let me, let me, let me say this. When you, when you read this text, I've thought about it. You can either step back and say, God, who tests our hearts. In other words, God puts our hearts in the balance and looks at our motives and looks in the very core of our being, and he says, you are worthy or you're not worthy. I just don't think that's what the passage means. Because none of us are worthy. None of us measure up. It's only the work of Christ. I think what he's saying here is, is not the God who, who examines but, but, but the God who is Abba, Father, 
This Abba, Father, God is the one that, that we look to. It's the God we, we glory in. Listen to this. This is from a Puritan. It's two paragraphs. The Lord by his Spirit manifests and confirms his love to his people. For this purpose, he meets them at the throne of grace through the work of Jesus. There he makes himself known unto them as he does not unto the world. There he causes his goodness to pass before them in the work of Christ. And he gives them the spirit of adoption, whereby, unworthy as they are, they are unable to cry out, Abba, Father, or dear Father. He causes them to understand that great love where he has loved them in redeeming them by price and by power, washing them from their sins in the blood of the Lamb, recovering them from the dominion of Satan, and preparing them for an everlasting kingdom where they shall see his face and rejoice in his glory. The knowledge of this his love to them produces a return of love from them to him. They adore him and admire him. They make an unreserved surrender of their hearts to him. They view him and delight in him as their God and their Savior and their portion. Listen to this sentence again. The knowledge of this love to them produces a return of love from them to him. They adore him and admire him and make unreserved surrender of their hearts to him. See, that, that's the, see do you see the Abba love of the Father poured out in the cross of Jesus for your sins and applied by the Holy Spirit? See, they, they make a return of love. to. They see his love and make a return of love to him. See, I, I think what Paul is saying here is that, that God, God tests our, this is Abba Father who has entrusted us with the gospel. And he is the glorious God who tests our hearts. There's a quote in the bulletin from John Calvin. This is a beautiful statement. He says, God of his own nature is inclined to allure us to himself by gentle and loving means. As a father goes about to win his children by laughing with them and giving them all they desire, if a father could always laugh with his children and fulfill their desires, all his delight would surely be in them. And then he says this, such a one does God show himself to be toward us. Wow. I love that. Such a one does God show himself to be toward us. See, do, do I see the incredible, glorious love of God for me? Does that melt my heart? See, the difference is between uh, I don't want to do this because God may smack me. And that's, I don't want to do this because it would break the heart of my dad. See, my dad, man, my old man will beat me. This would break the heart of my dad. God tests our hearts. He's entrusted us with the gospel of grace. Huge difference in motivation. Huge difference in worship. Huge difference in living. 
See, I should be aware of people, but overwhelmed by the wonder of Christ. No. I should be aware of what people think and try to speak gracious, but I should be overwhelmed by the mercy of Jesus. And thirdly, he says this. He says, you know, we, we, you know, we, we never use flattery, nor do we put, up, put on a mask to cover up our greed. God is our witness. So if we're going to be bold in God, we just, we just speak the truth in love. God is my witness, and we don't give ourselves to flattery and greed. There's a book written uh, about 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, by a man named Stingle, and is entitled, You're Too Kind, A Brief History of Flattery. Very interesting book. And he says, you know, you think that the people that would not fall for flattery would be those who are the most educated, most successful. He said, that's just not true. He says, the, the people that are, are most easy to flatter and the most easy to deceive are people that have been successful. He says this. It's very interesting. People of high self-esteem and accomplishment generally see the praise directed at them as shrewd judgment rather than flattery. <laughs> people say nice things to you. You say, well, you know, he's a very discerning person. <laughs> he really, man, that guy, that guy, that guy really understands life. Yeah. Then he goes on. He says this later in the book. He says, uh, it has become a cliche to declare in 2000 that we live in an ironic age. But what does that really mean? For one thing, we all have a looser, more skeptical relationship with the truth. We are all moral relativists these days. No one believes in the George Washington cherry tree standard anymore, if they ever did. You know the story, George Washington, who cut down a cherry tree, and his father said, son who cut down that cherry tree, he said, I can't lie, it's, I did, Daddy. And really, he was living in Texas when that happened. That's when he moved to Virginia, because you can't live in Texas and not be a liar, and that's the story I heard one time. <laughs> the Texan told me that story. No one believes in George Washington cherry tree standard anymore if they ever did. The enlightenment idea of truth as a supreme value has gone by the wayside. Nothing is completely straight anymore. Nothing is unstrategic. We live in an age of flattery, he says. Paul says here, we, we, didn't use, we didn't use flattery. For those of us who are over 50, remember this guy? There was a show when I was growing up called Leave It to Beaver. Now I'm going to show this 1130, and it's going to be a total blank. Everybody's going to hear. <laughs> but uh, there's a show called Leave It to Beaver that was a perfectly inane, silly, stupid little show that I enjoyed. But in this show, there was a guy named Eddie Haskell, who was, uh, who's the older brother's name? What was his name? Wally. Wally, thank you. He was Wally's best friend, and Eddie Haskell was the most deceitful, flattering. Uh, it was it, it just, even now thinking about it, it makes me want to punch the wall or something. <laughs> but he was a flatterer. Uh, Paul says, you know, we're, we're not flatterers. We, we, we're not. God is our witness. We speak as men before God. If you're to be bold, you, you don't give yourself to being a flatterer just for selfish ambition. You just speak the truth. Now, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. The Bible says in Colossians 4, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. Philippians chapter 10 says that the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. I mean, to, to, to speak the truth, 
doesn't mean you, you're uncaring. It means you're very gracious and you're very, very parsimonious with your words and you're very diligent. But you speak as before God. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The sovereign Lord has given me the, strung of the, the tongue of the instructed. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens me to listen like one being taught. And I thought that, that, that's, that's the key. The Lord awakens us to listen like one being taught. We speak before God. We speak the truth, and we speak it in love. We don't speak it to please men, but we speak to please God. In John chapter 12, this is what it says. Verse 42 to 43. At the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be, would be put out of the synagogue. You see, if you confess Christ in certain places in the day of Jesus, they would ban you from synagogue worship and kick you outside of the covenant community of the Jews. And then John adds this commentary, for they loved the praise from men more than praise from God. I just I thought, you know, do, do I love your praise, almighty God, more than I love the praise of people. So, so as a test. See, we, we speak the truth. We speak it in love. And, and all of this, I'm saying, all of this flows from understanding grace. All of it. All of it flows from understanding that, that, that none of us deserve God's mercy. It's only the grace of the cross. All of it flows from a life of worship that says, I'm going to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. His name is Jesus, who saves us from the coming wrath. All of it flows from that. How are you bold in God? How do you not live in vain? You have a God orientation as you grapple with and understand the gospel. I saw this this week. It was an archaeological magazine. This is a first century uh, Grave plaque. It's a long plaque. It's translated as the Biblical Archaeological Review, 1992. I'll just read it to you. This is what it says. Here lies Regina. She will live again. Return to the light again. For she can hope that she will rise to the life promised. As a real assurance to the worthy and the pious and that she has deserved to possess an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you, this your chaste life, this your love for your people, this your observance of the law, your devotion to your wedlock, the glory of which was dear to you, i.e. her children. For all these deeds, your hope for the future is assured. That's the way a lot of people live. She has no hope if that's her confession. Because sin has separated her from a holy, holy, holy God. And it's only the sin-bearing Savior who died on the cross for our sin that makes her acceptable in the presence of the living God. That's why our hope, our hope is in Christ. Conversely, I think of a warrior who was bold to the end, who went to India in 1793 and died there, 
41 years later, named William Carey. And this man who translated the Bible into at least eight languages and started a Bible college and was marvelously used of God, and even during his lifetime was being toasted as the father of modern-day missions who buried two wives in India and a child and a daughter-in-law. And, and, and he, when he died, his gravestone said simply this, A wretched, poor, and pitiful worm, on thy kind arms I fall. He got the gospel. How are you bold? You get the gospel of grace every day. You play to an audience of one. His name is God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You speak the truth in love. You don't give yourself to what one sociologist calls a, a pervasive shallowness that permeates our culture. You give yourself to the things of God. That's who we are. By God's grace, let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for the teaching out of 1 Thessalonians 2, and we thank you for preserving this for us, Holy Spirit. And I, I pray that we would stand up and say we are, a, a, we are approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. I, I pray that we would stand up and say that we, we, don't, we don't speak as, 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 as men who are trying to please Men, but men who are trying to live out our lives before the God who watches us. That we would say as we speak the truth in love, I am speaking the truth because God is my witness. I, I live before God. So Lord, have, have mercy upon us and use us. I, I pray, Lord, you'd use us. I pray that we'd be bold and not live in vain. That our lives would count. In Jesus' name, amen.